You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Welcome back, my Freedom Pact family. Today on the show, we are joined by Professor Donald Hoffman. Donald Hoffman is an American cognitive psychologist at the University of California. We've got a mind-blowing episode for you today, and one that may needed to be re-listened to multiple times like I have. In Donald's book, The Case Against Reality, Donald argues that perception doesn't present things as they are, but instead acts like a desktop interface, which enables us to interact with the world for evolutionary benefits. Donald's theory in the case against reality is that evolution has pulled the wool over our eyes, and for that reason, we don't see reality as it is. What a sensational claim. In this podcast, we examine the very foundations of consciousness, what it is, why we haven't found a theory for it yet, will we ever find one, and Donald's mathematical theory of consciousness. We also explore other ideas that include why is evolution hiding reality from us? What is the nature of consciousness is one of the biggest unanswered questions in science today. Here we take a crack at it. I hope you enjoy this episode with the incredibly thought-provoking Professor Donald Hoffman. Professor Hoffman, it's such a pleasure. Welcome to the Freedom Pack podcast. Thank you very much, Joe. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, really is my pleasure. So before we delve into um, your fantastic book, The Case Against Reality, um, I was reading a scientific American article entitled Humanity's Greatest Unanswered Questions, which dated back to 2017. And the question what is the nature of consciousness was the uh, third biggest unanswered question. So before we delve into your fantastic work, I wonder, have you recently cracked this and you've got an exclusive for us? <laughs> uh, I'm still working. On, I've got a mathematical theory of consciousness. And I'm uh, actually this morning working on some of the mathematical um, implications of it. It's a dynamical system and there's lots of mathematics to study so i'm studying i'm just learning new math all the time as i start to study the the flow of conscious experiences through networks of conscious agents and the polytopes that come up in that and so forth so so the nice thing is it's um there's there's really serious hard work to do there is serious mathematics to do about this it's not just I've got this little idea about consciousness and, you know, it's just casual conversation, but, but, but no science. It's just really like, okay, there's some serious math 
And we're talking months or years of hard, hard work to really pull out the implications. And so, so I'm really quite excited about that. And, you know, what I'm up to right now is um, also looking at how the dynamics of consciousness can give rise to um, structures that we're seeing in modern physics. The idea, I mean, ultimately, right, if I have a theory of consciousness and I'm saying consciousness is fundamental, I need to give testable predictions. And that means I have to, if I'm saying that space and time are not fundamental and only consciousness is fundamental, I have to show how space and time somehow arise as like an interface or some kind of projection from this deeper level of conscious agents and its dynamics. And that's got to be mathematically precise. No hand waves. I have to say exactly how the dynamics of conscious agents, this vast network of conscious agents, gets projected into space and time so that I can actually make predictions that we can measure because that's, that's the only place we can really measure is in space and time. So I'm spending a lot of time uh, learning a lot of physics um, and you know, trying to show eventually how we can project the, the, the long-term behavior of conscious agents, the so-called asymptotic behavior. What happens when you look at it, not step by step, but look at it broadly. What's happening over long stretches of, of the dynamics of conscious agents? Sort of like looking at the freeway, not, not each individual driver and how they're driving individual cars and pushing on the gas and so forth, but getting up in a helicopter and just looking at the whole freeway from high above. And, and you can sort of, you, you don't get to see the individual drivers, but you get to see sort of the global flow of traffic. Oh, there's a, there's a traffic jam here. That artery is too narrow. We, they really need to widen that part of the freeway. You, you see all that kind of stuff from high above, but you don't see all the individuals and their worries and their fears and how they're turning their steering wheel and so forth. And so th the idea that I'm pursuing is that what physics does is it, it, it's the helicopter view of consciousness. It, it's not seeing all the details, and that's why it doesn't see consciousness as consciousness. It only sees it as like the helicopter looking at um, traffic from high above. You could use fluid dynamics, little particles, just unconscious particles flowing through little arteries that we call the freeways, and just look at fluid flow dynamics and, and forget that there's drivers involved in the whole thing, if you're looking at it from a helicopter. And so that's what I think physics is doing when it looks at consciousness it's only seeing the long-term behavior, and so there's nothing that, that's recognizable as consciousness. So that's sort of what I'm working on right now is taking those, those intuitive ideas and trying to make it absolutely precise so we can get some precise predictions. We do love precise predictions. Um, I got so many questions to ask you um, today. I think a great place to kick this off would be, I always sort of look at consciousness through the lens of experience. Um, do you sort of use a different definition or how would you define the term consciousness? Right. <clears throat> so I would agree that conscious experiences are sort of the foundational aspect of what I'm thinking about. And by experience, I mean, there, you can mean several things by experiences, right? So I need to be a little precise about that. By that, by experience, I mean simple things like um, you know, the smell of garlic or the taste of cheese, something that I could imagine a mouse in, you know, has, right? So I'm not talking necessarily about high levels of consciousness, self-awareness and things like that. I'm talking about simple, raw experiences. And, and, and for me, 
as well, I'm taking them as having a qualitative aspect of what it is it like to experience aspect. And, and that's, uh, you know, most of my colleagues or many of my colleagues, well, I'll say many of my colleagues do not have that point of view, right? They'll, they will say that we can talk about conscious experiences um, as just almost like physical informational states, but nothing, nothing experiential in the sense of what it's like to experience and nothing qualitative. The technical term is phenomenal consciousness that they, they think that there's no such thing as phenomenal consciousness. And, and I, I mean, I had the pleasure last week of having a conversation at the science of consciousness conference. One of the sessions with um, a, a brilliant um, philosopher, um, Keith Frankish from, from England. And he thinks that there is no such thing as phenomenal consciousness. And he thinks it's an illusion. He, he has this view of illusionism. And so we had a, a, you know, I'm really delighted to talk with people who disagree with me. I learn a lot from them. So he, he's a really bright uh, philosopher who thinks there's no such thing. And he argues that it's just physical stuff. And uh, I argued um, to the contrary that there, there is phenomenal consciousness. But that's, to answer your question, that's sort of what I mean, there's phenomenal consciousness. There is something that's like to taste cheese, even perhaps a rat, or, you know, or lots of other creatures, not just humans. There's nothing special about humans. It, quite to the contrary, uh, I, I imagine that humans, the range of experiences that we have is trivial compared to the range of experiences that are possible by, by other conscious agents. So um, by I do not limit the notion of conscious experiences to anything that humans have. I, I imagine... Uh, a, a boundless variety of conscious experiences of which the human experiences are, are a trivial, trivial subset. Um, and one other thing about consciousness that, that's fun, foundational in, in my thinking is that conscious experiences are not inert. Hmm. They have consequences. We make choices based on our experiences, right? So Experiences don't just exist and do nothing. They inform conscious choices. And, uh, and, and I would say, I should not say conscious choices. I, sh I should say they inform choices. We may or may not be aware of the actual act of making a choice or how we make the choice. But they inform choices. And th the reason I focus on those two is, as a scientist, I'm trying to get the minimal assumptions from which I can boot up an entire theory of consciousness, right? There's lots of things you might think should be um, explained by a theory of consciousness. So um, learning, memory, problem solving, intelligence, um, the hard problem of consciousness, life after, is there life after death? What, there's tons of, you know, is there such a thing as, as um, well, free will? There, you can just, there's a huge laundry list. I have a little slide that I give in some talks where I have, I don't know, it must be 40 things and, and people can come up with more, right? There's, so, so there's this laundry list of things that we want from a theory of consciousness. And, you know, if I just assume them all, well, then yeah, I've got a theory of consciousness, but it doesn't do anything. I, I've just assumed it all. So, so what we do when we build a, a theory in science is we try to find the absolute bare minimum of assumptions that allow us to explain everything else. And so the one that you picked, experience, 
is one of my two assumptions. The other assumption is that experiences inform decisions that, that, that are in some sense free, not absolutely free, but, but they are not determined either. So they're, they're not perfectly free and they're not perfectly determined. They're influenced by, by one's experiences and agents' experiences and the influences of other agents. Those are my only two assumptions. The, the key, you know, top level assumptions, then the assumptions about how I cash that out mathematically are also intended to be as non-restrictive as possible. I, I won't go into the math unless you want to, but, but just when I do the mathematical side, so the, the two assumptions are that there are experiences, they inform choices. I can turn those two assumptions into mathematics and I try to make it as, as completely non-restrictive as possible in the mathematics. And then the goal is to explain everything, learning, memory, problem solving, the notion of self, I don't assume that there's a self. Um, I, the self itself is something that would be constructed by networks of conscious agents. So I have to do all of that work. I didn't assume it, so I have to actually build it. And that's the point. So you I mean, make the minimal assumptions and then, then you're forced to build everything else, including building the, the link to, to physics, the projection into physics. I'm really interested in the conscious theory and why we haven't sort of cracked it and I want to get into the mathematics size as you pointed out but one of the things I would love to ask you is um, very similar to the question that Francis Crick put forward do we need more data to understand it or have we just not found the right experiment well it's hard to argue with Francis <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he's, he was uh, an absolute genius. I had the pleasure of knowing him. And um, in his 80s, he was sharper, had a better memory, and more incisive thinking than I've ever had at any point in my life. <laughs> he, he was truly a brilliant man. So when I, if I disagree with him, it's, it's um, um, uh, with great respect and uh, acknowledging that, um, you know, if I were a betting man, I should bet on Francis, not on Don Hoffman. So, <laughs> but, but Francis was a, a hard-nosed physicalist. He thought that space and time and physical objects like neurons are the fundamental nature of reality and that we have to boot up a theory of consciousness based on some kinds of properties of neural systems or embodied neural systems. And his idea was roughly that, you know, look, before 1953, um, before the discovery of DNA by Watson and Crick and its structure, um, it, it, one could be a serious thinker about biology and have thought that maybe there wasn't a lawn vital, something non-physical that was special about life, right? Mm -hmm. And the, with the discovery of the double, double helix, um, that Alain Vital notion of, of life became much less tenable because now you had this notion of this, the genetic information that's passed on from generation to generation, the notion of replication, eventually the coding system for proteins, the whole bit. I mean, it, it, so, so what Francis was trying to do was to discover effectively the double helix, the DNA of neuroscience that would solve the problem of consciousness. That was what he spent the last 20 years of his life. And, you know, you can't rule out the possibility, which is, as you pointed out, what Francis was saying is that if we continue to do research in neuroscience, we may find that 
empirical fact where all of a sudden the lights just turn on, just like it did with DNA. You go, oh, it, you know, it has not escaped our notice, as they put in their famous 1953 paper. It has not escaped our notice, you know, the implications for, for replication and so forth. So, so it wouldn't escape our notice if we discovered this one fact about neuroscience, um, how, it, how it solves the riddles of consciousness. Now, um, we haven't found it. We haven't found it yet, but in 1952, you could have same, said the same thing about life, right? We haven't found it, right? So, so Francis is, you know, his, his idea, I think, cannot be ruled out a priori on biological grounds. Now, I'm thinking about physics grounds that seem to start ruling that kind of thing out. The idea from physics in particular putting together general relativity um, and quantum field theory together. Gravity and quantum mechanics. When you put them together, uh, to make them work, you have to let go of space-time. Space-time is doomed. It cannot be fundamental. And I think the very notion that objects in space-time exist when they're not perceived and have genuine causal powers goes with it. But space-time is doomed and with it goes physical objects, including neurons. Neurons, like any physical, so space and time, when, when, when physicists say space and time is doomed, or, or space-time is doomed, they're, they're saying that it's not a fundamental concept in physics. They don't know what is fundamental, but it's not space-time. Space-time is emergent. And that means that in all likelihood, the true cause and effect, if there is cause and effect, isn't inside space and time. We'll have a picture, perhaps, in space and time of a cause and effect that's not true. It's just a picture of the deeper level of cause and effect. And then evolution by natural selection seems to be saying the same thing. This is work that I've done with some of my colleagues, including Chaitan Prakash and, and um, uh, Brian Marion and Justin Mark and others. Um, evolution by natural selection seems to be agreeing with quantum theory and gravity that space-time cannot be fundamental. So, and we can go into that if you, we will go into it, I guess, in the evolutionary thing. But the point here is that, you know, just looking at the neuroscience alone, if you're just a neuroscientist, then yes, what, what Francis is saying Sure, we can't rule it out. But when you look beyond neuroscience to evolution by natural selection, and then the relationship of quantum theory and gravity, our three big pillars of science, when you look at them squarely, are telling us that space-time cannot be fundamental. And what is fundamental could be something in which the very predicates of space and time and locality and unitarity simply don't exist. Those things aren't there. And in that case, um, all bets are off for, for neuroscience being fundamental to consciousness. Um, we, we have to, and, and what's interesting is that my, my brilliant colleagues, I mean, I'm friends with many of the big players here in, in the study of neuroscience of consciousness and the philosophy of consciousness. Uh, most of them would, would reply to what I've just said by saying there's no evidence that anything but classical physics is relevant to um, consciousness. 
except of course the orchestrated objective reduction by Penrose and Hameroff. There, there they're looking at quantum phenomena. But most uh, would say, you know, it's it's purely classical, nothing to see here. And and I'm saying that's really dated. That's physics has moved well beyond um, classical mechanics. It's now moving beyond space-time and quantum theory. And you know the the real the leaders in the thinking right now are looking at structures in which even quantum theory does not exist. There are no Hilbert spaces. There are no Lorentz invariant. There's it's it's not. There's no locality. There's no Lorentz invariance. It's 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 a completely new realm. And and so for those reasons, um, I I will politely disagree with with, with Francis. I mean the 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 fields of physics and evolutionary theory have advanced in the last 20, 30 years to, to make it seem very unlikely that we're going to find the double helix of neuroscience that will rule out, that, that will explain consciousness. Um, so. I find that so fascinating. And I would love to sort of wrap up this little segment of why it is so difficult for us to come up with a nomological network of you know why there is a theory or what the theory of consciousness is and i wonder why isn't this perhaps a an occam's razor argument you sort of discussed this in chapter 10 of your book um wh wh why wouldn't this say be the the simplest explanation would win wh wh why isn't that the, why wouldn't the idea that consciousness is fundamental be the simplest explanation or the, that physics is fundamental? The, uh, the former, the former, the, the consciousness is fundamental. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, my colleagues would argue that they don't want to start with consciousness that is not fundamental because first physics has been so successful for the last four centuries. And it's been based on space-time, mm -hmm. right? Ever since at least Newton, but even before, you know, physics has completely transformed the world. And the fact that we're talking here via Zoom, all, all of the wizardry that we're doing is all due to the dramatic success of a physicalist worldview. Yeah. So, so in some sense, they would say the the burden of proof is on someone who wants to let go of of space time right it's mm. this stuff works dramatically we've explained lots of stuff with it our our science is is and technology is based on you know our technology is based on this idea in science and so the burden is on someone who wants i mean if we've been able to do all this without consciousness not assuming anything consciousness being fundamental then we should just give it the good old college try and keep going. And yeah. hey, you know, that's a reasonable position. The, the only reason that I think it, even on their own terms, it may not, be unre may not be reasonable is these dark clouds that I just mentioned, that space-time is doomed, that is coming from quantum theory and gravity and also from evolution of natural selection. That, that, that has to play out. But I think when it plays out, we'll realize that space-time has had a good ride it was an incredibly powerful framework and it's over. Um, and it's time to move on. Just like Newton's space and time was an incredibly powerful framework for centuries. 
until Einstein. And it, it seemed inconceivable in 1890 that, that uh, you know, something seriously wrong could be happening with, with Newton. It, 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 it was successful for centuries. And we eventually had to let go of, of the space and time, the Euclidean space and time of, of Newton, the absolute time and so forth, and take on some incredibly radical new concepts. And I think that the same thing is about to happen with space-time itself. Space-time now has had just over a century. That's a, that's a good ride, and it's done a lot for us. And now it's the glory of science to take its best theories and have those theories tell you this is the end. This is as far as we can go. The, the theories can tell us where they stop. Space-time is doomed, but they can't tell us what's next. And so that's the fun part for us as scientists is we, we have good evidence from our theories that is over for space-time. But our theories cannot tell us what's next. And so we get to be creative. We get to take the leap beyond. And so in that sense, I think that um, for me, the answer to your question is, if I'm going to take a leap beyond, and I have to let go of space and time, and I ultimately want to understand consciousness, then why don't I start with consciousness? That would be the Occam's razor kind of view. Let's start with just consciousness and show that what we thought was a non-conscious physical world is just a visualization tool that certain conscious agents use to understand the complicated dynamics of a vast network of conscious agents. So we would get a unification, an Occam's razor kind of simplest theory in which consciousness is fundamental. And what we thought was an unconscious physical world is just our VR headset that, that we use to visualize this vast network of interacting consciousnesses. So that would be the unification. It would be a monism. Consciousness is fundamental. There's no such thing as unconscious stuff. So mm -hmm. it is a monism. Whereas physicalism, right, is a monism that says it's only physical stuff. There's no such thing as conscious stuff. Um, so I'm, but, but now I'm saying space-time is doomed and that kind of physicalism is gonna be doomed. So let's start with consciousness and boot up space-time as a headset. Fascinating. And just speaking to you, you can understand why this is such a pursued and deep question. Um, I think this is a great place to um, jump into your book, The Case okay. Against Reality, which is absolutely fantastic. I mean, okay. I usually judge how good a book is by how many times I have to go back and sort of study the last page. <laughs> and you'll certainly had that effect on me. Um, so I wonder, you know, the sort of case which I got in your book is that evolution is pulling the wool over our eyes in regards to reality. What is the evolutionary advantage to it doing that? Right. So, so it's actually, I think, quite, common among serious thinkers in evolutionary theory to recognize that evolution um, so will have selection pressures on us to have false beliefs, right? So, so for example, um, Keith Frankish, the, 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 the philosopher that I was talking with last week, what, is arguing on evolutionary grounds that our belief in conscious experiences is an illusion that that has been played on us, right? Now, he, he doesn't explain how, 
but he, he, he and he understands that there's work to be done to actually you know say why evolution did that in that particular case of phenomenal consciousness that gave us false beliefs um, and 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 he agrees that there's there's work to be done but but it's quite common to 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 say that evolution would select us to have false beliefs so S Steve Pinker has a wonderful paper paper called so how does the mind work that he published in 2005 and he lists five different reasons why evolution might lead to false beliefs right you know among them are well you know truth can be complicated and time consuming to compute so heuristics and shortcuts um you know if, if you're spending all the time computing all the details of a tiger uh instead of just figuring out i better run uh, the tiger's going to eat you kind of thing so so computing the truth may not always be what you want to do you may need to have some quick heuristics if it's if it's sort of red and has stripes and is behind bushes, um, get out of there, right? Right, that, that kind of thing. You don't need to compute in detail. Oh yeah, that's a tiger. And by the, by the way, it's really biting into my arm right now. Oh, now it's biting my chest. But see, that's not, that's not the kind of truth that's gonna help you. So, so there's, there's that kind of thing. There's also, um, you know, we, um, we do lots of inductive inferences um, in, in perception and cognition. These are, and, and these inferences require assumptions. And the assumptions that may have kept us alive during the Pleistocene are maybe not the assumptions we need to see truth today, right? So there's that kind of argument. Um, there's the argument that uh, we're social animals. And so often our beliefs are shaped by membership in a group. I wanna you know, show that I'm part of this in-group. You know, it might be a religious group, it might be a political group, and so I adopt the positions and beliefs of that group, not because I've done a deep, detailed analysis, but because I want to be in, and I want to be, you know, loved by, by my group and accepted. So there are social pressures toward false beliefs. Um, and, and that's why false beliefs can really last in, in these groups, right? Because they perpetuate. Uh, and, and also there's um, the fact that, you know, so, having showing that you can have some really brilliant or amazing ideas can be a way of showing off right and so exotic beliefs not necessarily true beliefs but just exotic beliefs can be shaped by a natural selection and some you know pinker suggests that that may explain some of the what goes on in academia but uh, and then finally there's the um you know the idea that um from evolutionary theory, there are selection pressures to deceive. And the best deceiver, it turns out, is someone who is self-deceived. If I'm not, if I don't even know that I'm lying, then you, it's gonna be hard for you to detect that I'm lying. And so it turned, this is an argument by Robert Trivers, an evolutionary biologist, that, that the best deceiver is one who is self-deceived and there are selection pressures for us to be deeply self-deceived. Now, the, the one I worked with, so those are, those are sort of common. So this is not new to me. Those are all common in the field. So I'm just, I said all that just to say that it's not unusual for evolutionary theorists who really know the field of evolutionary um, dynamics, you know, evolutionary game theory and so forth to, to say, yeah, there are selection pressures for us not to necessarily have completely true beliefs. I'm taking it in a new direction, that kind of argument. I'm saying, 
our very perceptions, the raw perceptions of tables and chairs, forks and spoons, the moon and the sun and so forth, that there are selection pressures that none of the structures that we see, the structure of distance between me and you in space, the shape of a spoon, the colors, the textures, all of these structures that we see that we call, quote unquote, the physical world, I'm saying that evolutionary game theory entails the stunning theorem that the probability is zero that any of the structures that we see in perception, space, time, shapes, colors, any of those structures reflect anything about the true structure of an objective reality. Our perceptions, the structures in our perceptions are not the structures of objective reality with probability one. That's the theorem. It's a truly stunning theorem. That's why I'm saying space-time is doomed, not just because the physicists are saying it, you know, from gravity and quantum theory. I'm saying space-time is doomed because natural selection entails the structure of space-time as we see it, so space and time, as we don't, most of us don't see space-time in the technical sense that the physicists talk about, but we see space and time. The structures of space, like distances and sequences of times, those structures um, almost surely do not reflect the structure of objective reality, according to evolution by natural selection. And so, so that's the, the stunning reason why I'm saying that our perceptions don't show us the truth. And that, and, and has, how does I get to the consciousness thing? Well, when we look inside of skulls, we see brains. And if we look closely, we see neurons. And we assume that those brains and neurons exist when they're not perceived. And we assume that those neurons, their activity causes our conscious experiences. And I'm saying those neurons are merely icons in a little virtual reality headset that evolution has given us. And just like if you, if you have a VR headset on, you're playing like virtual tennis and you see a tennis ball that you and your friend are going to be playing with. Well, the tennis ball exists when you look at it. You see the, the green tennis ball. When you look away, there is literally no tennis ball. There, there was no tennis ball to begin with. But when you look, you just get pixels, you know, you know shot to your headset that, that make you create the illusion of a tennis ball. And, and so you destroy the tennis ball when you look away. When you look at the tennis ball, you create one in your virtual, it's a virtual icon for you. And you can play the game with this virtual icon is perfectly fine. Well, neurons are the virtual icons that we create when we look inside skulls. They don't exist when they're not perceived and therefore they have no causal powers. So my diagnosis for why we can't boot up a theory of consciousness from neurons is that neurons don't even exist when they're not perceived. How could they boot up consciousness? So I, I guess that the person listening now, they're probably thinking, okay, you know, it's such a compelling, compelling case, which links so many different uh, theories in from evolutionary game theory to various aspects of fig- physics and other, other, you know, massively detailed areas. I imagine the person I was thinking, okay, if, you know, cups aren't cups and buses aren't buses and knives aren't knives, then what are they? Uh, so what are these things? They're, they're just like the icons on the desktop of your computer, right? If you're, if you're writing a, a paper, 
or crafting an email or something like that. And, and the icon for the item that you're doing, like the, your paper. So you're, you're writing a book. You've been at it for a year. And the icon for your, your book is blue and rectangular in the middle of your screen. Does that mean that the book itself is blue and rectangular in the middle of your computer? No. I mean, it's, it's really silly. So, so the idea is that the, the reason the icons on your desktop are useful is because they don't show you the truth. Right? The, in this metaphor, the truth are the voltages and magnetic fields inside the diodes and resistors of your computer. Well, I mean, if you, if you had to know that truth to write your book, like toggle voltages to write your book, none of us would write books. It, 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 we couldn't do it. Knowing the truth gets in the way. But having little icons and little graphical tools, word processors and so forth on the computer, allow us to control the diodes and resistors and the voltages without even believing that they exist or, or knowing that they exist. So, and that's what evolution did for us. It, it gave us things like lions and tigers and snakes and cliffs as warnings. If you see a cliff, there are certain behaviors you should do and shouldn't do. Don't step off. If you see a snake, unless you're a really gifted snake handler, there are certain things you should not do. Do not grab it by the tail. Right? There are, you know, there are, so, the, so you're not being shown reality. You're being shown the symbols that you need that guide adaptive behaviors. And that would be the evolutionary point. The, the, and I think on this point, all serious thinkers in evolution would agree. They would say, of course, our perceptions were shaped to guide adaptive behavior. And what I'm saying is full stop. Most evolutionary theorists would then go, but to guide adaptive behavior, of course, it's going to be useful to have the, our icons be true, our perceptions be true. And then I say, no, if you go look at the mathematics, that last part is false. True perceptions are not what you need to guide adaptive behavior. In fact, just the opposite. True perceptions get in the way. So I, I'm perfectly with you in regards to the, um, the adaptive behavior side of evolution. Where um, I would love to pick up on is this sort of mathematical model of consciousness, which you talked about, which yeah. takes that then a step further. So what is your sorry, what is your mathematical model of consciousness? Well, okay, this is a little bit deeper and a little heavier, but um, so I have a structure that I call a conscious agent. So the idea is I'm going to define a thing called a conscious agent. And the idea will be that then I will have lots of these conscious agents of all varieties of different kinds of conscious agents forming a big social network like the Twitterverse, right? So what is a conscious agent? Um, we sort of talked about a little earlier the basic ideas. A conscious agent has uh, experiences. So there's a set of experiences that it can have. Like maybe a simple agent, maybe it can only experience red and green. That's all. So it has two experiences. And this would be a very, very simple agent. You could call it a one-bit agent because it only has two possible conscious experiences. And I have to say a little bit more than that is just a set. I want to say that it has, it's a set with a, a, a probability structure. So I can talk about the probability of, see, of having the experience red or the probability of having the experience green. So I need to have what's called a measurable structure. And that's all I assume about conscious experiences. Now, of course, 
there's a whole field called psychophysics. And I've, I've done some work myself in psychophysics. And, and when we study experiences like colors, we find that there are, there are other structures. There is, there is um, a geometry of color space and there is a metric. One can actually talk about a non-Euclidean metric about how, how similar colors are to each other. Like red and orange are much more similar to each other than red and blue. And so you can actually talk about a, a, a mathematical metric, a non-Euclidean metric, and, and it's, it's geometry colors, but there's a lot of good work there. Now, so I'm not excluding that kind of structure in my definition of a conscious agent, but I don't want to build it into my basic definition. So my basic definition only says each agent has a set of conscious experiences with just the minimal structure required to do probabilities, to talk about probabilities of experiencing. So that's sort of the philosophy of it. Of course, in a, for a particular conscious agent, there could be this non-Euclidean geometry. Maybe it's got a very rich color space with a non-Euclidean geometry. I'm not disallowing that, but I'm not, I'm not putting that in my definition. So that's the, the, the conscious experience part. And then the next part is, I said that those would inform choices. And the idea there is, again, I want to have the minimal mathematical statement of what I mean by that, right? And the, the sort of the minimal one that I could think of, and we can talk about it, but is to say that if I have, the idea is roughly like this, if I have the experience read, then I want to be able to talk about the probabilities that I do this, that, or the other, to other agents and their experiences, right? To influence their experiences. So that's the intuition. If I, if I experience red, then I want to say, these are the probabilities for doing this, that, and the other to other agents and their experiences. Well, so that says for, for red, I want to list the probabilities. And then say for green, I want to list, uh, presumably if I see green, I might do something different, right? So I would have different probabilities for this, that, and the other that I would do. And it turns out that the simple mathematical structure that, that says the probabilities of doing this, that, and the other, given red, green, blue, whatever it might be, is, is called a Markovian kernel. And so I write down that, that an agent really has a Markovian kernel, and it has a couple of them. One, to choose what action it's going to take, and then the other, where once it's got the action, how that affects the other conscious agents. But those are just Markovian kernels. And, and so each Conscious agent is really a set of conscious experiences and a couple kernels by which it influences other conscious agents. That's it. Very, very simple. It's provable. So, so first, this is a network, right? This is a, it's a vast network. It's, um, it's not a cyclic. There, there can be cycles in, in this network. Uh, and, and network dynamics is really complicated. It's a relatively new field in the last few decades especially with the internet and so forth, we've really had to start understanding network dynamics in a deep, deep way. And so there's many of the basic properties are still not known to mathematicians. They're, this is really open territory. So, so I'm, I'm plunging in immediately to an area where, of course, there's a lot of good work, but we, there are a lot of open questions. And that's sort of the top level of the mathematics. Then we have to look at how um, networks of, so for me now, I have the basic definition of a network dynamics. Now for me, I have to explore what can this network do, right? The first thing is there's, it's a theorem that anything that a network of computers can do, 
a network of conscious agents can do. That's a theorem. So anything that's computable by computers or networks of computers is also in principle computer by a network of conscious agents. It's a trivial theorem to prove. So I know that anything that computer systems can do, I can do with a network of conscious agents in terms of just the formal properties of what it can compute. So it's, 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 it's universal Turing, put it that way. It's the universal Turing system. So, so that is trivial to show. So that means that um, I've only assumed experience and these minimal free choices. I can build theories of learning, memory, intelligence, problem solving, and the self. These now, uh, I know, can be built, right? Like literally, I know they can be built because I have this theorem that, that this is a universal computing platform. So I can build theories, but the element, the processors are not unconscious machines, they're conscious choosing agents. So these conscious agents are the fundamental quote unquote computing elements. It's really conscious experiences informing genuine choices that are equivalent in power to Turing machines, universal Turing machines, which um, are, are assumed to be unconscious, you know, um, you know, deterministic physical systems or, or non-determinist non Turing machines have the same power as deterministic Turing machines in terms of the class of functions they can compute. So, so that means I can, and this is what we're up to, one of the things we're up to is we can now start to use this network of conscious agents as an alternative to, to like neural networks to build up theories of cognitive processes. So that's one of the things that, that we can do with it. I find that extremely fascinating. And um, one of the things in which I'd love to touch on with that, because I feel like that links into um, the evolution side as well, is I'd love to touch into this concept of observation versus measurement and why this could potentially be key in this uh, whole consciousness conception. Great, great question. And, and this is an issue that um, gets raised often against my evolutionary argument, right? That I, I'm saying that our senses have evolved not to show us the truth, and, but that's just about our personal observations. And science does more than observation, the argument could be. It does measurement, right? So I might be sitting here and um, uh, measuring how things move with respect to me and so forth and how far things are with respect to me. But a, a physicist might, for example, um, be using uh, all sorts of measuring devices, atom, you know, like light clocks and so forth, to, to actually show that maybe um, what looks like a simultaneous, so in, in special relativity, right? Say special relativity, right? Um, there's two, two guys on the train and there's a light right between them on the train and the light flashes. And for the two guys on the train, it looks like um, they, they would say that, uh, you know, for an observer on the train, that both of the guys see the light at the same instant from, an, from the point of view of someone that's on the train from that reference rate. But for me, standing on the flat, uh, platform and the train is going by, you know, if I do careful computations with special relativity, I would find out that the, the observer on one side, the, um, on the side in which the train is moving, um, gets the light a little bit later than the observer on the left side who's moving toward the light, you know, toward where the light was coming. And so from my point of view on the train, I would say that they have different, they don't see the light at the same time. 
And so that would be what a physicist would call measurement that I'm using, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm using not only my observations, but also some deep logic like Einstein's theory, you know, the Lorentz invariance and Einstein's theory of special relativity to do a, a measurement. And then they might say, but in that case, I'm getting at reality. Now there I'm getting at reality. Observation may not get at reality, but measurement gets at reality. That, that would be, and so what you're saying about um, evolution of natural selection um, doesn't hold, they might say. That's just about observation. And, and, and my, my reply to that is, think about someone playing virtual reality Grand Theft Auto. So you put on your headset and you got some other friends who are, uh, put, have their headsets on. And you know, I have, of course, a particular point of view with my headset. I'm making just observations of my wheel and the red Ferrari over there, the green Mustang, and how fast they're moving. But, but if I wanted to, and my friends and I cooperated, we might start to compare observations and do some hard work and realize that there's a Newtonian physics going on here. Uh, you, there are Euclidean distances and Euclidean times, and we could actually work out, aha, there is actually a Euclidean geometry going on. I don't see it completely from my own little headset point of view, but when I compare Joe and, and Susan and all the, we, we, we write down the math, we see that, yeah, we're, this is Euclidean geometry. So we, you might then take the step and say, aha, that means we see the truth. Well, no, you don't see the truth. You're seeing just a property of the game. That's the way the guy who wrote the software of the game, he, he built or she built, the, the team built, a Euclidean uh, virtual physics into the game. And so you're finding that virtual physics of the game. And so when the, that's what I'm saying, the physicists too, space-time and Lorentz invariance is not fundamental reality. It's just the structure of our headset. It's the structure of the game. And so when physicists say that, that measurement gets us to the truth, the reality, uh, I say, well, in the case of Lorentz invariance, it does not. It gets you to a structure of the headset, the VR headset that evolution has given us. But space-time is doomed, and so there's going to be a deeper structure. Now, I'm not saying, by the way, that science could not possibly get us to a deeper understanding of objective reality and its structure. Right? You might say, well, haven't you just contradicted yourself? I mean, you just said that evolution said that can't be. But yeah, evolution says that can't be, but evolution is only a theory in our space-time. It's not universally true. So evolution is saying there is something beyond space-time. Well, in that thing beyond space-time is going to be a dynamical theory that's more general than evolution. And in that more general theory, it may be that it's allowed for us to have truths, to, to perceive truths. So there's going to be this deeper reality outside of space and time with its own dynamics. In my case, I'm saying it's the network of conscious agents and the network dynamics of conscious agents. When I take that dynamics and project it back into a space-time headset with its Lorentz invariance, I better get back evolution by natural selection as a special case dynamics. Not the final dynamics, it's just the headset version of the deeper dynamics that's outside the headset. And so, so that's the game we have to play in science. We have to take our best theories, which so far have been inside the headset. Science so far, almost, I would say 99.99% of all science has been a study of our headset 
and nothing else. Right now, science is just taking the first steps outside of the headset. When we say space-time is doomed, and physicists are starting to look for structures outside of space-time, then I think, yes, for the first time, science is now venturing outside of the headset. And all the work that we've done on the headset is extremely valuable because anything that we propose outside the headset, we have to show how it projects back into our space-time headset because that's what we can test. So we know how to test. Physics and, and all evolution, we know how to do hard-nosed, can't-fool-me tests inside the headset. So we haven't wasted our time. It's been extremely valuable. We just didn't know that we were studying the headset. Now, for the first time, we can crawl. We can use science. I think it's up to the task. We can use scientific tools to venture outside of the headset. Um, and I'm not saying that we're guaranteed to be right. And in fact, even if we happen to get a correct theory, we can't know that we're right. Because then, you know, even if every experiment we do confirms the predictions of our theory, that doesn't mean we're right. It just means we haven't been smart enough to get the next experiment that shows we're wrong. So that's, that's an interesting epistemic situation we have as scientists and as human beings. We can never know if we're right. And if I were a betting person, I would bet against us, right? If you look at the history of human thought, we're systematically wrong. We believed in flat earth. Everybody believed it. You had to be a fool not to believe it. We were wrong. Then we thought the earth was the center of the universe. Everybody believed it. You had to be a fool not to believe it. Systematically, all of us, we you know, talk about herd mentality. We've had the herd mentality and we've been wrong repeatedly. So, so why should, and every generation has thought, oh, but now we've got it right. So if we look back, history thought, well, everybody goes, well, all the previous people were fools. We now, we, we now understand. And it turns out they were fools too, <laughs> just not fools in the same way. So, so I'm not, I don't want to be a fool that way. I'm, I'm just going to put it flat out. I'm probably wrong, but it's the best idea I've got so far. And, and, and that's where I think we need to be as scientists. That's how we make progress. We have to say, these are our best theories. We have to study them, take them very, very seriously because it's the best tools we've got. So to not take them seriously is, is not to be a serious scientist, but always recognize, of course, we're probably wrong and be looking for the hint about the next step. I, I, I love that. And, you know, you're so right. I mean, you had Pythagoras that, you know, said, oh, actually the world isn't flat. And then you look at someone like Charles Darwin with his sexual selection theory. And I would love to know where you actually see this going, because I think towards the end of your book, you talk about Steven Pinker basically said, like, look, we may never actually find out. We may actually never get a concrete theory for it. So where do you actually see this theory of consciousness going? Will, will there ever be answered? Right. Now, I think um, Steve, who is a brilliant brilliant thinker and, and, and a good friend. Um, I think when, when Steve was saying that um, we may not get a theory of consciousness, he, he was thinking um, from within a physicalist framework. Mm -hmm. And he's saying that, you know, he's taking it very, very seriously, the, the repeated failures of attempts to start with neural activity or computer architectures and computer functions and so forth 
And, and, and Steve was pretty hard-nosed. He, he recognizes that, that those are not giving you phenomenal consciousness. And he doesn't want to hand wave. None of us want to hand wave. But, 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 and so he's, I think, that's the honest point of view. If, you're, if you take physicalism really seriously, consciousness is not fundamental in the beginning of the universe, then you have to say that we don't have any theories that could explain how physical systems could give rise to consciousness. So right now we just have to say, we can't, we can't understand that. Maybe, maybe the way we should think about it in that case is it's true that physical systems somehow give rise to consciousness, but our puny brains will never figure it out. That's surely a plausible position, right? We don't expect monkeys to understand quantum mechanics. I could be the most gifted teacher, uh, but if I have a room full of monkeys, good luck. Yeah, it is, it's not going to happen. And so maybe we're like monkeys when it comes to the question of consciousness and how physics could give rise to it. Maybe it is true that physics without consciousness could somehow boot up consciousness, but we're just monkeys and we can't. So, so I, you know, um, I rarely disagree with Steve. So, so you know, I agree with him that that's certainly, certainly quite possible. Um, but my attitude is, let's, every scientific theory makes assumptions. And for the point of view of that theory, those assumptions are the miracles of that theory. People don't know, my colleagues don't like me to talk about them as miracles, but they're miracles in the sense that the theory does not try to explain these things. It just merely assumes them and it can't explain them. It's assuming them. Mm. If you assume space and time is fundamental, you're asking for a miracle. You say, please, if you grant me space and time, and if you grant me that it's Lorentz invariant, if you grant me Hilbert spaces, then I can, I can do some interesting stuff. I can give you modern technology and so forth. Where does space time come from? I don't know. I can talk about a big bang, but you know, right there at the singularity, a miracle occurs, right? I mean, and, and now you can try to get rid of that miracle. You can say, well, you know, like I can say, I want a deeper theory. Like Seth Lloyd has said, I, I can get rid of space time by having quantum bits and quantum gates. So this, there's this, the fundamental reality now in this theory is, is quantum circuitry, not in space and time. It's a, it's a circuitry outside of space and time. And then he shows how each quantum gate the action at the gate gives you a little curvature of patch of space-time, and you can boot up quantum gravity. So great. So now you've explained space-time. That's no longer a miracle, but now you've got the quantum bits and gates. That's your miracle, right? And, and that's the point. It's, it's like when, when kids ask parents, but why? You know, why is the sky blue? Well, it's because of the way light scatters off. Light. Well, why does it, and you keep asking these why questions until you finally go, that's just the way it is. I mean, I stop, right? And, and that's the way science is too. You stop at these fundamental assumptions. So, and I, and I say that just to make the point that at the, at the heart of every scientific theory are these assumptions. It's, you can't have a theory of everything. There's no such thing as a theory of everything. There's a theory of everything except my assumptions because the assumptions are my miracles. So I can give you a theory of everything except these. So I want to keep the assumptions to a minimum. Like, and that's what I was saying in, with my theory of consciousness. I'm trying to keep the assumptions to a minimum. Conscious experiences exist. They inform decisions. Those are my miracles. And they're big miracles. But space and time is a miracle too. And it's a big, big miracle. And, and so the reason I say this is that people will go, you know, Hoffman, I, 
you're, po you're proposing that conscious experiences and free choice are fundamental. Those are miracles. It's just like, it's too big a miracle. And I just want to point out, that's the way science works. You put your miracles on the table. Space and time is just as big a miracle as red and green and conscious experiences. They're all miracles. Quantum bits and gates are just as much a miracle. So what we're doing, it, so, so we're all equal here. We're all putting miracles on the table. The proof of the pudding is what can you do with the miracles that you've assumed? Can you, how much else can you explain? If I start with a space and time miracle, a physicalist miracle, we've utterly failed to explain anything about consciousness. Not even, by that I mean, there's not one of these physicalist theories that can explain even one specific conscious experience, like the taste of chocolate. What is the integrated information computational architecture, causal computational circuitry that must be or give rise to the taste of chocolate or any specific experience. They can't do it. Orchestrated collapse of microtubular states. Okay, what is the orchestrated collapse that is the taste of vanilla or any specific conscious experience or what is the global workspace structure and broadcast circuitry that is you know, the smell of garlic? Please just give me one example of one experience that you can say what the physicalist structure is that gives rise to it or, or is that. They can't do a single one. That's what I mean by there is no explanatory power for even one conscious experience from physicalism. So given that, that, utter, that kind of utter failure, Occam, they can't use Occam's razor and say we need to stick with physicalism principles, because that's the simplest. Occam's only applies to theories that succeed. It's, Occam says if you have two theories that succeed in explaining something, then pick the simplest. Well, they, they don't qualify. Physicalism doesn't qualify to, for the Occam's razor here, because it doesn't succeed in explaining even one specific conscious experience. So, so now, so I take the, the other approach. I say, okay, I'm going to take as my miracle that there are conscious experiences. That's a big, hefty miracle. And when you, when you really ponder what I'm saying, it's truly amazing, right? It's, it's a lot to think about. Conscious experiences are fundamental, not the Big Bang, not space and time, conscious experiences. That, that's a big one. And then free choice. But those are my two assumptions and they can be put in simple mathematical statements. Now the question is, can I explain the appearance of Minkowski space and curved space times and quantum field theory and evolution by natural selection as a projection of the dynamics of conscious agents. Well, that's what I'm working on because if, if I can do that, then I do have Occam's razor on my side. What I can then say is that there, there are two theories now that explain say, you know, um, quantum field theory, right? One in which you start with space and time, one in which I start with consciousness and conscious agents. Both can explain the same phenomena. Hopefully I'll be able to explain new stuff and make new predictions. Then I really win, right? That would be the real win. New predictions that you couldn't get from a space-time framework, then it's really game over. But, but even if I didn't get that, if I can just start with a mathematical theory of consciousness and get everything that quantum physics has got so far in general relativity and evolution by natural selection, then I win based on Occam's razor. I can explain consciousness 
Well, I have a framework that, that put, it, put it this way, gives a theory of consciousness that is assuming aspects of consciousness. And I don't have to assume anything about physics. I'm not assuming space and time. I boot them up mm. from a theory of consciousness. Whereas the physicalist has to assume space and time. Those are miracles. And they can't explain consciousness. That's a miracle too. So I have fewer miracles. So that's sort of the Occam's razor argument for starting with, with, with consciousness. Um, now, the way that the physicalist can, of course, counter is to succeed in coming up with, uh, you know, for example, an integrated information theory, causal computational architecture that is exactly, uh, that you can say, this is the taste of vanilla, or this gives rise to the taste. Give me even one, and it's a completely different game. I'm no longer in the good position that I was in. So, I love that. And I love speaking to you. And I want to link people to your uh, fantastic book, Case Against Reality, which will be in the show notes um, below. Before I go, I've got a couple of quick fire uh, sure. questions for you, which I would love to ask. These are not related to your work, but more um, in regards to you. We always ask these at the end of each podcast. So I would love to know, uh, Donald, what books have impacted your life? Wow. Um, I, there have been, been a number. I, one was um, David Barr's book, Vision. I was David's student at MIT. Um, David Marr and, and Whitman Richards were my co-advisors, and, and, and David died while I was his graduate student at MIT. But David Marr and his book had a profound impact on me because it was a, a revolution in the understanding of visual perception. Marr, did a he died when he was 35, but he revolutionized the field by the time he was 35. And so I would say if it weren't for Mar, I wouldn't actually be in this field because it was reading, it was as an undergraduate at UCLA that I took a, a class where we read a couple of David Mar's papers. And I said, who is this guy? Where is he? I want to work with this guy. And that's, so that's, so it was his papers in that book that really um, got me going. So hats off to, to David Marr. Um, so that'd be one big book. I think I've been heavily influenced by Steven Pinker's book, How the Mind Works. Um, I was aware of evolutionary psychology before his book, but um, and I, I knew um, Lita Cosmides um, and had interviewed her actually at UCI for a job position, um, which we should have given her. Uh, I urged our department to give her the job, but, but um, new fields get accepted very slowly. So, but Pinker's book, How the Mind Works, um, really helped me to grasp the potential and power of evolutionary psychology. And that book ultimately then was responsible for me getting into using evolutionary game theoretic analyses to study um, perception. And so I, you know, thanks Steve. He may not uh, approve of the output of, of what I've done, but, it, but I can thank him as a friend for stimulating me to think in those directions i love that and the last question i've got for you today before we tell these guys where they can connect with you and we link up to your work is what makes a life worth living ah wow well i, I should say off off 
right up front, I don't know, but I can give you my guesses. Um, please, please. Um, for me, because in, in this work that I'm doing in consciousness, right, there, there's a question, the question that you ask is really in that framework is what is consciousness about? If, if there is consciousness and it's doing something, why? What the heck is it doing and why? So that would be what, is, what makes life worth doing, right? In some sense, if that's what, it, what it's about. And the answer is I don't know, but, but I've only had one idea that's deep enough so far to be taken seriously. It doesn't mean it's right. But it, it, but it means that that is worth at least taking seriously. And it, it comes from Gödel's incompleteness theorem. And the short of inco his incompleteness theorem is that there's no end to the discovery of mathematical structure. No matter how much you, dis you discover of mathematical structure, there is endless more to discover. It's unending. And in a world, in a universe that I'm proposing in which consciousness is all there is, that's, all, that's what it is, then mathematical structure is all and only about consciousness and varieties of consciousness. And so in that context, Gödel's theorem leads to what I call Gödel's candy store. It's an infinite variety of, of conscious experiences to explore. And what he's promised us with his theorem and proven is that the exploration in principle can never end. And so what, in that point of view, what consciousness is about is the joy, the delight, of the endless exploration of the possible varieties of consciousness. And so in that sense, if you're exploring, if you're exploring in art, if you're exploring in music, if you're exploring in science, if you're exploring in, in sport, if you're exploring and humbly being open to novelty in your exploration, not arrogantly thinking that you know it all, but being humbly open to learning more, even in an area where you're quote unquote the expert. I think that's what makes life worth living and a worthwhile pattern of life. But again, that's, that, that's my best theory so far and I won't be arrogant about it. Maybe I'm wrong. I thought that was a beautiful answer. Can you tell these guys where they can connect with you or if you've got any closing messages for them? Uh, well, I have uh, my book, The Case Against Reality, um, that they can see these ideas in some detail. I have a Twitter feed, Donald D. Hoffman, D-O-N-A-L-D-H-O-F-F-M-E-N, at Donald D. Hoffman. So I, I, I tweet, you know, not, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a hard tweeter. I don't tweet all the time. But when I find something of interest or I have a new talk, I'll tweet about it. So people, if you want to, if you want to see my talks, I've tweeted most of my talks and links so that people can go and see my talks. Um, or um, you can try to email me. I get so many emails that I, I have to pick one or 2% <laughs> to, to respond to, but, 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 you know, if, if, you know, so I have to sort of select, but ddhoff at uci.edu. Um, I, I can't, that I can't promise that I'll get back to, but, but every once in a while I can. That's amazing. Professor Hoffman, this was such a pleasure. I felt like we really got into some good ground today. And I, once again, man, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show. Everything will be linked below. Thank you, Joe. It was a great pleasure. Wonderful questions, and, and I appreciate it.
Well, guys, my mind is blown from that interview. Are we living in a simulation? Will we ever get an answer to the question of consciousness? There's certainly a lot of ground to ponder from that episode. Before we go, our goal is to make this the biggest community of thoughtful action takers on the planet. If you enjoy our work, please let a friend know about our podcast. Consider leaving a five-star iTunes review. And if you want to get even more value from us, we offer a healthy, wealthy and wise newsletter which goes out once per week with the best advice, studies, articles and quotes from around the world. I hope you have a great week and I will see you on Monday.